honest questions with honest answers. This is Unfiltered, brought to you by the Emergency Medical Minute. Welcome back to Unfiltered. This is your host, Nick Sippis, and we're privileged to have a special guest with us today, uh, Dr. Stephen Bradley, uh, active and practicing anesthesiologist, uh, uh, active duty U.S. Navy, and the founder and host of the Black Doctors podcast. Dr. Bradley, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. So one of my favorite things, and I say this in nearly every unfiltered episode, is my favorite parts about being able to host this podcast is to hear folks' origin stories. I know, and we'll certainly get more into this as we talk about the Black Doctors podcast, but would you mind just spending a few minutes to share with our listeners kind of your background and and, and how you got into medicine? And then we'll go from there to talk about some of the exciting initiatives and and your podcast going forward. Sure, absolutely. So uh, again, I'm Stephen Bradley. I'm an anesthesiologist by training. Growing up, I didn't have any exposure to healthcare or the medical field. My dad was a naval officer, so we moved around a bunch because of his job. As I was growing up through high school, I realized I wanted to join the Navy as well to follow in my father's footsteps. You know, it's not uncommon for military brats to go into the service as well. At the time, I was considering becoming a chaplain because I played music and I was very involved in the church. I figured I could be a chaplain and join the service that way as an officer. I ended up going to a private school where I was studying music ministries with that goal of becoming a chaplain. After that first year, though, I realized that music really wasn't for me, and I was wondering about other career paths and options, and I realized I wasn't truly applying myself in college. So I went home that first summer after my freshman year, and I worked construction. I've been working construction since high school, um, and I continued that summer after my freshman year, I was doing high voltage electrical work as an electrician's helper mm. at Shands Hospital in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Mm-hmm. My family's all in, in Jacksonville. That's where my dad retired. So my job, I would go in probably about 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning with a bunch of other construction worker types. And I would go to the basement of the hospital and then they'd pull up a grate in the floor and I would crawl down into the sub-basement. I put on like a pair of waders and the sub-basement of the hospital was all like dirt and mud and I would run electrical conduit and run different lines uh, as part of my job. So I'd come out about 7 o'clock, 7.30 and I'd be on break and I'd see all these guys coming in in scrubs, these really nice cars. And I'm like, geez, you know, (laughs) I'm doing something wrong. Like maybe uh, I should rethink this. And, And some of the guys that I worked with doing construction, they were like, man, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd be a doctor. I'd be a nurse. And that was my first exposure to to the healthcare industry. I remember going to one of the physician's offices and changing a light fixture and seeing those degrees on the wall and, and seeing how he was dressed and how he's interacting with patients, even for that brief moment, kind of inspired me to look deeper into healthcare. So I went back to school as a sophomore, thought the rest of the summer, I was in between changing my major to nursing or pre-med, but I didn't feel that I was smart enough to actually do pre-med. I didn't have any of that background and it was just overwhelmed at the thought of it. I settled on a degree in pre-physical therapy at my school that had the same prerequisites as the pre-med program, minus some of the more intensive science courses. But I would have the prereqs, I could then apply to medical school or I continue on to um, physical therapy school. So that's where the the path first diverged. I started down this trail to medicine as a sophomore. For the rest of college, in those three years, I crammed all the prereqs in. I did a little bit of shadowing 
with a orthopedic surgeon, actually, Dr. James Andrews, a big name orthopedic surgeon who was, sure. who was there in Pensacola, watched him operate. I'm like, man, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. That was what I thought I wanted to be anyways. <laughs> and that kind of settled for me the pathway to medicine. I graduated college because I started late. I wasn't able to take the MCAT at the appropriate time. So I went home, stayed for eight weeks, studied every day, eight hours a day, took the MCAT, and then started a one-year master's program at the University of South Florida as kind of a post back to help get me even more prepared for medical school. And while I was there, you know, did the interviews and, and fortunately was accepted to the Howard University College of Medicine. And that's where I went starting in 2010. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing. How did you manage to get a shadowing spot with Dr. James Andrews in college? Yeah. So I honestly wasn't shadowing him. I was as part of the physical therapy program, mm -hmm. I was shadowing the physical therapist there at the Andrews Institute. He has a big clinic in uh, Alabama and then like a subclinic in Pensacola, Florida and Gulf Breeze. Sure. So I was there with their physical therapist and every now and then he's like, hey man, let's go look at this surgery. And it was the coolest setup. I haven't seen it duplicated since, but you could walk down like this main corridor of the operating rooms and there was frosted glass. There was four operating rooms that you could see and they could defrost the glass and you could watch him uh, operate. You know, he has so, so many high profile wow. um, clients. So that was my exposure to orthopedic surgery and medicine. Medicine's not really like that most places, but <laughs> so agreed, agreed, it, it was agreed. a nice, uh, nice introduction. How did anesthesia steal you away from your budding and undeniably what would be <laughs> have been a successful career in orthopedic surgery? Oh man, if only, uh, you know, I showed up to medical school. I was still lost because my goal was to get accepted to medical school and I accomplished that goal. And then I showed up and I'm with so many other students with different backgrounds. Some folks that had wanted to be surgeons their whole lives. Some people that knew what it takes to be an orthopedic surgeon, people who were legacy. Then there's some folks like me that didn't really know what the heck was going on, but it was just so overwhelming that Honestly, after my first semester, I was ready to go home and call it quits because I've accomplished this thing and I don't know what to do next. I was around the orthopedic surgeon folks in my class and they were so intense. I was like, oh my God, I, this is not me. This isn't fit with my lifestyle. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I finished my first year, finished the second year. I, I figured, hey, I'll take the step one. I'll see what my score is and I'll base my decision upon that. So I took the step one exam. I was right on the average, right below the average for anesthesiology. I had a buddy who was, he was a schemer. He was like, man, let's do opto. I'm going to do opto. You sit down, you operate, you make a ton of money. I'm like, okay, I, I hate the eye. So we both got our scores. And then this guy's like, man, I'll do anesthesia. Anesthesia is like awesome. You make so much money. It's, you know, it's cool. I'm like, all right, well, I'll make anesthesia a plan B going into my third year. I'll see what I like. Um, it just so happened that the American Society of Anesthesiologists conference was in DC that year. So hmm. I was able to walk down from my uh, apartment to the conference. And, and it was interesting, but I wasn't sold. So going into third year, I made that a plan B. And I, I suggest that to medical students now to have a plan B that you've started doing some research into and, and going to conferences to kind of prepare yourself depending on what you're interested in. But I, I kept an open mind as I went through the different rotations. I started out on pediatrics. You know, I love the kids, but that wasn't for me. I went to obstetrics and gynecology. It wasn't for me. I really, really fell in love with surgery. On my surgical rotation, it was more so rounding up patients into surgical ICU and that intensive care aspect of surgery. Right. I loved the ICU. You know, all of my classmates, a lot of people hated it. And I'm kind of one of those people that's like, well, if everybody hates this, I'm going to find some way to enjoy it. Yep. And I love the complexity. I love being able to break down, you know, a very 
very complicated patient into some, some very simple organ systems and tackle problems one by one. Um, so I love the surgical ICU. Surgery was okay. I remember I was in the ICU on a weekend and one of the trauma surgeon attendings she was on and I went into the operating room to help her out. Well, let me rephrase that. She told me to come help her out and hold the camera. <laughs> voluntold. I was voluntold to come to the operating room, sure. Yeah, I was voluntold. So I'm in there and I'm holding the camera for a, a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And I'm like, oh my God, this sucks. Um, and I couldn't imagine having to do lap colloids and lap appies, you know, to actually pay a bill. And then I was thinking about, do I really like the operating room? I talked to her about this after the case. And, and thankfully, you know, she was very understanding. And she was like, you know, if you like ICU, I told her I love ICU. I'm not sure about surgery. She said, well, if you like ICU, there's a couple of different ways you can get there. You can do internal medicine and pulmonary critical care. You can do anesthesiology and an ICU fellowship, or you can do surgery. And that's when everything kind of collided and connected together. It's like, well, boom, I can do anesthesia and I can marry this um, this love for the ICU by doing an ICU fellowship. So that, that's when my plan was uh, solidified. It was probably about winter of my third year of medical school. And then fast forward and you, you blink, I'm sure. And now you're practicing anesthesiologist. You trained at the university. University of Chicago, your you know simulation coordinator for the residency. I, I, you mm-hmm. know, I, is that where you would have thought your training would have taken you? Whether it's you know that kind of education component, is this how you thought it would play out, or were there certain points along the way that pivoted you one direction or the other? Oh, abs- absolutely not. You know, going to the University of Chicago was a dream come true because I am a, a fairly average student. I work hard, but academically, I like things that are very practical. Mm-hmm. And I'm hard pressed to work my butt off just to become the top 100 percentile of the class, you know, or to honor a rotation because I have to go above and beyond, whereas you can master a subject and still be you know, considered average or the high average of medical school. So I said all that to say I wasn't the most competitive applicant, right? I didn't apply to Harvard. University of Chicago was my REACH program. I think I applied to maybe 30 residency programs for anesthesia. And, you know, University of Chicago was was definitely high on my list. So when I got the match results, man, I was ecstatic. I remember going on all the interviews and trying to see, you know, what was a good fit for me. And I, and I definitely felt like I was a good fit there in Chicago. But the anxiety, the uncertainty, knowing that I'm not the most competitive applicant, maybe I should have worked a little harder as a medical student to honor more courses. Or, or what have you, but I never would have envisioned that I would be here now. And Match Day was definitely one of the happiest days of my life. University of Chicago was a very rewarding program, very complex cases. We had an amazing group of residents. My co-residents we were like a family and just was able to learn so much and see so many different things that I incorporate now into my practice and that I am able to teach other residents that I work with. Well, I think, you know, we've been talking for now almost 15 minutes, and it's just a brief sliver of what has been well over a decade of dedicated study, right? And, you know, I think you take care of the sickest of the sickest patients, right? And you have worked, as I said, for over a decade to be in the position that you are. And I know that one of the motivations of starting the Black Doctors podcast was to share stories like that, right? It was like to share stories like your own and those of colleagues of yours, particularly colleagues of color, to show folks there is a path for you, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's a lot of work. I mean, we've just barely skimmed the surface of how much work you've put in to be in the position that you are. But can you talk about your motivation for starting the Black Doctors podcast and how and the kind of message that you would like communicated through the stories that are told on it? Absolutely. So my motivation for starting this podcast coming through my path, I had a lot of 
what's been termed now imposter syndrome, but just feelings of inadequacy, feelings that I didn't belong, feelings that nobody understood where I'm coming from. Everybody else is amazing. Nobody has these problems. And as I got towards the end of my training as a senior resident, I was able to kind of look around and be like, man, you know, a lot of people struggle, you know, whether you're white, black, Indian, Hispanic, whatever. We all have our own struggles and we all have our own things that we're dealing with. When it comes to fellow minority students, it's very difficult. The whole time that you're going through medical school or residency, not only are you competing academically, but on the inside, you're wondering, you know, doing these different situations that occur, is it because I have a knowledge deficit? Is it just a personality issue between me and this patient or between me and this attending or me and this other resident? Is it because I'm black or I don't look like them? So all these things can kind of foster that self-doubt and that uncertainty. As I started to talk more with my junior residents and co-residents and, and get their stories and find out the things that they had to go through to make it in medical school, I had colleagues who would take their student loans and they were using that to help support their families. Hmm. Um, you know, so you're like, why are medical students coming out with so much debt? You guys should really live within your means. Well, these these folks were supporting their families off of um, their student loans and not, not their immediate family, like sending money back home to mom, hmm. back home to brothers and sisters that were still at home. Other you know, students had applied three or four times to get into residency or applied four or five times to get into medical school. And, you know, that's that's not uncommon with how rigorous medical school applications are. But hearing the things that they had to go through and their dedication and persistence, I found that inspiring and comforting because it told me, hey, you're not alone. We all go through stuff. Um, and then I said to myself, well, why aren't these stories being told more recently, you know, with the rise of social media? We've got all these influencers. I mean, shoot, if I went to medical school the way some of these folks on uh, Instagram are going to medical school, school, I would probably stay to medical school. It looks so fun. It does look glamorous. That's not how I remember it either. I agree with you. Yeah. And I know like I was so ragged as a medical student, as a graduate student, <laughs> I was so broke. At one point, you know, I was couch surfing and I didn't have money for food. And at uh, Barnes and Noble studying and one of my graduate classmates, he said, dude, when's the last time you ate? And I said it was yesterday. And he bought me a pizza bagel and that was my meal for the day. In different episodes like that, my buddy Chris, he would bring us over his family's house because he lived in Tampa. So th so I know that, that I had uh, struggles and hearing other people's struggles something that I think these stories need to be told. People don't need to see, you know, everybody going to these fancy coffee shops and, and journaling and all this stuff because that's not what medical school is. And we're, we're selling a, a false narrative, hmm. um, especially when it comes to minorities and students of color. So on my, on my Instagram for the month of February in 2020, I started a, a campaign or a challenge that every day I posted a minority healthcare provider a minority physician or entrepreneur. There was a couple of different job types and, and career paths. But I wanted to highlight people that you don't see on social media. They're not influencers, but in their own right, they are you know, going to work every day and influencing and changing lives of hundreds and thousands of people. And I think these are the stories that we really need to get out there. So I did that for the whole month of February, You know, 28 or 30 different profiles. The more I thought about it, I said, I want to do something that has a little more long lasting legacy, something people can go back to can search through. And that's where the idea of building a podcast and getting that off the ground, that's where it came from. So I Googled a bunch of stuff. I looked up how to start a podcast and that's where the idea took off. Well, thank you for doing that. I, you know, your your story has such value and such meaning. And the stories that you've shared, I've gone back through many of them from February. They carry such value and such meaning to the community to shine as an example, right? And 
I was particularly struck by the comments of systemic racism, right? And mm-hmm. and comments of sometimes overt bias uh, and sometimes covert bias. But I have learned a lot just from trying to review some of those stories that you've mentioned. And they're just, again, they're just the tip of the iceberg of yeah. stories. And I would love for you to share with our listeners some of the more powerful testaments you've had, the opportunity to, to discuss with folks about people's experience with systemic racism in medicine and discrimination overt and covert, and just help us understand and as a, as a podcast, some of the experiences that physicians and other medical providers of color have gone through over the course of their training and in their practice, uh, I, I just think that's such an important thing for us to discuss, if, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So these words like, you know, systemic racism, it, it gets thrown around, but until you actually drill down to see what that looks like at a, at a granular level, that's where it kind of gains some, some more impact. So systemic racism, as it pertains to healthcare and medical school and becoming a physician, you know, just the simple fact that there's not a lot of diversity when you get to the attending level or faculty level at medical schools, you know, if there's not a lot of diversity at that level, then on the admissions committee, there's not going to be that much of a representation as well. So when students are coming through, you know, that's the unconscious bias of, you know, the group of people in the room is going to favor the group of people that looks like them more often than not. And that's just kind of a simple fact of life, but that's why it's so important to start breaking up these groups and to start advocating for a diverse group of students, a diverse group of faculty members, and diversity on these panels that are selecting students. So that's what systemic racism in the academics process, you know, that's kind of what it looks like. When it comes down to residency and medical school, there's different instances. And I didn't understand much of this until I was a resident. So when you're on rotations with other students, you're constantly being compared. A lot of that's where the imposter syndrome comes in. Maybe you didn't have that background where you're as comfortable in the medical field as some of your other classmates. And as a medical student, a lot of times that reveals itself by silence. A lot of students are quiet compared to other students, and that allows those students to look great and stand out and other students to, you know, you don't really know what to think about a student. And as a resident, and working with medical students that are quiet, I'm realizing like, man, I'm so frustrated because I think this student is smart, but I can't tell. And I was able to know some of these students on a more personal level um, because I worked with different organizations that were pipelines for my minority students. So I knew these students were smart. I knew they were capable of the work. I knew they just weren't as loud and involved as some of their classmates. But as I heard my attendings start to evaluate these students, they chalked the silence up to ignorance, or maybe they're overwhelmed, or maybe they're this or that. And, you know, there was not any malicious intent in that. But this is kind of what happens in the absence of a loud voice. A lot is left up to subjective interpretation. So that's something that I've worked on with minority students to say, hey, you have to use your voice. You have to be heard. You know, you're not going to be right all the time, but you do have to contribute and, and speak up because the way the system's stacked, this is how that is being interpreted. Personally, as a resident, you know, there's often times that I would walk into a patient's room and they would say, hey, are you a young fella that's taking me down to x-ray? Are you transport? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm actually here to to see your dad. I was his anesthesiologist yesterday. just came to see how he was doing. Or another instance where I was cross-covering as an intern. And, you know, when I was cross-covering, I had 40 patients on the census. And I walked into this lady's uh, room. She was pre-op for surgery the night before. 
And, you know, she kind of pointed to her trays like, oh, you could take this tray now. And she had several of her, her adult daughters and sons and grandkids. They're all in the room and the room kind of went quiet. And one of her, her daughters, she was probably, like, you know, middle aged. She, she looked at her mom it's like, Mom, I think that's the doctor. You know, I was wearing my white coat. I was wearing everything mm-hmm. that, that said MD on it. And then, you know, everybody was, you know, awkward silence. And then I'm like, oh, it's fine. You know, how are you doing? What can I help you with? And the way I've approached these different incidents is um, one, I, I can't really let them get to me. I can't let them beat me up too bad. I can't let them get me down because these things just happen. So they're not infrequent when they happen and they can really throw off your day if you if you let them. So my approach has been I take each of these instances as an opportunity to educate and realize that, you know, people's biases are built by the things that they've seen, what they see on the news, what they see every time they come to the hospital. And where there's not a lot of diversity in the medical profession, that's something that they're accustomed to. And that's why they don't realize, you know, they don't associate me with being a physician. So I take this as an opportunity to be polite, to be understanding, to be firm and and reinforce my role on the healthcare team and say, no, I actually am your physician. And, and I use this as a learning opportunity. Occasionally, there are instances where, you know, patients will, will be intentionally rude or disrespectful and I have to change up a little bit and still be professional but still be more um, forceful and direct in terms of the nature of our relationship. So there's like a couple of the ways that the systemic racism and racism presents itself. The caveat that I always add is I'm not a mind reader, so I cannot look at you and say, just because you cussed me out or you kicked me out of the room, that doesn't mean you're racist. Maybe you're just a grumpy old man. Maybe you just had a death in your family. Maybe your dog died. You know, short of somebody using racial slurs or professing, you know, I don't want a black doctor, I'm very slow to determine that, you know, or attribute different responses to racism. So I think that's something that's kind of helped me keep going throughout all this uh, adversity. Thank you for your your, your testimony, Stephen. I, I, I know that stories like that, unfortunately, as you said, they're not infrequent. In fact, they're quite frequent for for many members of our medical community. Mm-hmm. And, and there are hundreds, thousands of, of doctors of color who've who could identify with what you've said and who along the course of their career have dealt with similar injustices, right? And I think your points about in the silence of not speaking up, th- that space being filled with kind of implicit bias is really important for all of us to hear, for any of us who teach medical students or who teach residents, paramedics, pre-hospital colleagues, whatever yeah. it may be. You know, I think we all have to be mindful and, and cognizant of that. And I, I thank you for sharing your personal stories and your personal experience, knowing that it reflects that of a lot of physicians of color. You mentioned education and you know you you hold a role now as a prominent educator for your <laughs> program and, and and how do you do, do you incorporate these types of lessons into your your simulation curriculum? Yes and no. So in the anesthesiology department, you know, there's not much in terms of implicit bias. I think just being there and helping to be understanding and, and how I interact with different patients, there is some value in that. But I guess one of the things that I've taken away from my experiences is when I'm with residents. Personally, I learned the best from my attendings that were more antagonistic, I guess, that that demanded perfection, that were very some would say malignant, but that's how I learned. You know, they, they had their best, the best of intentions, but they were kind of the older school attendings. That worked for me. That didn't work for some of my classmates in residency. So as I teach and work with residents and medical students, I still have some holdovers where I demand perfection or, you know, or like that's, that's the goal, right? And if someone says something that's incorrect, I stop them and we work through whatever they've said when they misspoke until they've come around to the right answer. But the thing that I've brought from my experiences 
is if I start seeing one of the residents I work with shut down or not respond to my way of teaching, I ask them, I'll say, I'm sorry, am I offending you? Tell me what way works better for you. And I will change my methods. I'll back off and I can completely change that because I realize that this is not an effective way to communicate and to teach with this individual. So I think that's the one thing that I've brought with this is that you can't teach with a broad brush and expect everybody to learn the same way, um, being sensitive to, to people's needs. And, and and I think, you know, I probably think I'm like a, you know, a block of ice. My residents know I'm a teddy bear on the inside. So that's, <laughs> that's part of it. But I think just realizing that one method doesn't work for everybody and you need to be able to change to effectively communicate. Because the goal is to produce a clinician that provides safe patient care and that is knowledgeable and an expert and consultant in anesthesiology or, or whatever the specialty may be. And we need to do whatever it takes as educators to accomplish that goal. Absolutely. Where do you see the future for the the Black Doctors podcast for you personally? If you could diagram out how you saw the next couple of years going and the message that you hope to get across and the way in which to do that. Any any thoughts about where, where things are headed? Oh man, that uh, now I now I do. Uh, now, <laughs> now, now, now I'm thinking about it. I guess. Um, so I'm working on the first season, which will probably be eight or twelve episodes, and I want to expand this because again, I don't want to just focus on it's the Black Doctors podcast. Uh, I, I am the Black Doctor, and I'll interview different professions. So I've lined up some pharmacists and some veterinarians and different specialties of medicine. My buddy, he's a, a model. He's got a great story to tell as well. So I want to get through all these stories. Looking forward, you know, another two years of this maybe, and we'll see. The beauty of this is that these will be documented and archived so people can always go back and, and listen and select, you know, what specialty are they interested in or what field and they can uh, learn from whoever they please. So I guess that's the, the long-term goal. I haven't thought too much about. Uh, personally, you know, I would love to continue to mentor students. I have a Instagram account, you know, at Stephen Bradley MD, and I am by no means an influencer because, you know, I can't take the, the pictures. I'm terrible with the camera. <laughs> but the highlight of my social media presence has been every two to three weeks, I get a message from somebody, a student, uh, EMT, a nurse who's asking a question about how do I go to medical school or how do I join the military as a physician or how do I join the military as a nurse and having those interactions because, you know, years ago when I was a kid, the only way you interacted with a physician was when you went to the doctor, unless you had a family friend. And I think that separation prevented a lot of people from learning more about the career field when all you had to do, you know, you had to read a book or you had to, you know, tag along to the doctor's office or what have you. And that prevented a lot of people from getting exposure to the field. The blessing and curse of social media is that, you know, everybody's connected now. Mm -hmm. So we can just reach out and, and gain that guidance, that mentorship. So in, definitely in the future, you know, I will always be open and available to talk with and mentor uh, people asking for advice. You, I'm struck by you know a lot of your responses, such a commitment on your part to really kind of a personal interaction, whether it's you're personally getting to know medical students of color so that when you're a resident, you understand them, you understand their backgrounds and their abilities, you know, whether it's as an attending, you're, you're personally getting to know your residents. Mm -hmm. And then in this most recent answer of yours, you're discussing people personally reaching out to you. And I think that is a powerful 
testament, right? I mean, it, that's how you make change. That's how you really impact someone's life genuinely is, like a, is a personal touch and a, and a personal investment. And I think along with that is, is your the structure of your podcast and the stories from, from February preceding it, they're personal stories, right? They, they yeah. really add a personal touch, a face, a name, a very personal, intimate insight into a story of a physician of color and their background. And I think I'm really struck by that. And I think that's such a powerful way. And, and, and frankly, that's why we have you on the podcast today, right? Is because you've given us a personal story of your own, but also you, you've actively reached out to folks to hear their personal stories. Yeah. Have you enjoyed being a storyteller? I mean, you've over the last few months, you've really ramped up your storytelling, not abilities. I'm sure that you've always been a storyteller, but you've just kind of actively gotten that out there. Have you enjoyed that? I've definitely enjoyed it. You know, I still feel that I'm not that bubbling, sparkling personality that I see on different channels. That's not me, but I realize that there is greatness around you. If you look around, you know, I'm a stop and smell the roses kind of guy. And you start asking people questions. I always try to be the person that talks the least when I'm with somebody else. Because I want to know more about that person and what makes them tick. And you can learn something from literally everybody you come into contact with. So using myself as a vessel or a channel to put these stories out there is what motivates me. Because um, I honestly like, I honestly hate being the, the center of attention. I will say kind of my what's changed the framework of my life and the way I view things is one of my attendings in the surgical ICU, Dr. Ahn. He would say before every consult, stop for a minute and assume that everyone is reasonable. And this was in response to like, you get a ridiculous consult and everybody's like, oh my God, why did they consult us for this? And there's that, that feeling of anger, rage, mm -hmm. you know, irritation. But he said, stop. Let's assume there's a valid reason that they're asking us for our help. And I've translated that from the surgical ICU to how I interact with nursing staff. So if, you know, a nurse asks for a refill on some medication that's not urgent right now, well, what's her backstory? She's probably asked for this medication before multiple times and been ignored. She's used to uh, this being written for before the patient comes to the floor. There's some kind of backstory, probably. So I take that with a grain of salt. And then when I interact with people outside the hospital, somebody's rude or cuts you off in traffic or in the grocery store, well, maybe you know they're in a rush. Maybe their kids in the car screaming. Who knows what's going on in their lives? So that's kind of how I've I extrapolated Dr. An's initial advice, and that's where a lot of my, my worldview comes from. Well, we're appreciative of your worldview. I think the medical community in general is is lucky to have you as a budding ethicist. We haven't even talked about that yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but just to close the loop on on your, your comments, I think that type of approach and mentality is is the way that change is made and the way that teams are built stronger and ultimately patients benefit the most from, right? And, and that kind of approach. Can we tie it all together with your current training of your in, in ethics? I, I think that's a perspective we have not really covered uh -huh. on this podcast. I, I, you know, it's, it's one that is so important. You know, we, there's so many issues that have come up recently of COVID related ethics, mm -hmm. right? And, and most places, if not all places really haven't had to go into those really difficult conversations of, right. Rat rationing care and and all of the, the things that I know that you and I and all physicians across the country never want to ever have to get to that point. But there still raises you know serious questions of ethics, right? And there's racial disparities about COVID outcomes mm -hmm. and other and 
other disease outcomes. There's questions of capacity and medical decision-making. As you've been training in this environment, whether it's COVID, whether it's the developing discussions of systemic racism, how has that interacted with your your training as an ethicist? And what kind of lessons have you learned from that? I know we'd, we'd love to hear. Them. Yeah, absolutely. The medical ethics part of things actually ties right into what I was saying previously is that you're gathering a bunch of different worldviews on a topic and approaching it from multiple angles. And that kind of will help you solve a lot of ethical dilemmas. If you figure out where the parties involved are coming from, that can help you navigate to a solution. For the ethics component of my training, my last year of residency, I did a concurrent medical ethics fellowship at the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. It's at the University of Chicago. For a month, we had daily lectures over the summer. And then once a week, we would have a grand rounds type meeting where we would discuss ethics consults that we received during the week. There was an ethics pager and an ethics call. We did that for a full year. And we had lectures from psychologists and from uh, lawyers and parishioners and other physicians. And it was a multidisciplinary group that included a physical therapist, ER physicians, a chaplain, and all these people coming together from different walks of life. It was an open and sharing environment. We were able to collaborate and learn from each other about how we approach different issues. So many times, like the pediatricians would be like, this is crazy. What are the surgeons thinking? And then the surgeons would be like, well, no, this is very common in our field. And just having that exchange allowed us to help change our approach to different clinical decisions. When it comes to COVID-19 and systemic racism and discrimination, one of the very concrete examples we had was in Boston, I believe, uh, I don't want to say the program because I'm not, I'm not entirely certain who, I don't want to misspeak, but a large hospital in Boston was developing criteria for who would and would not qualify for advanced life-saving measures. And as they put together this well-thought-out rubric and algorithm, different groups, some of the minority-led student organizations and residents started to speak up and said, hey, the way you're building these selection criteria disproportionately would prevent African-Americans from being considered because of how they presented some of the comorbid conditions. I think specifically they were talking about framing it as years of quality and productive life, mm -hmm. um, which would discriminate against minorities and especially um, patients with mental illness or disabilities. And if you contrast that to trauma care, where somebody comes in that's sick and dying, you triage based upon survivability, not based upon three years out, what will this person contribute to society or, or what will be their quality of life. And because these, you know, were there any ill will or bad intentions when they made this initial uh, algorithm? Probably not. But because certain people did not have a seat at that table, they weren't able to contribute to that discussion. So thankfully, enough people who were minorities had a voice that were able to call this into, into question. And they ultimately went back and changed several aspects of that algorithm or that schematic of, of how they would allocate care to where it was more equitable. So that's kind of a, an example of how that, that system works and how sometimes it doesn't work, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, with COVID broadly, you know, fortunately, we were able to avoid a lot of these difficult decisions and dilemmas. And time will tell. I, I'm a bit more progressive in that I think the healthcare system as a whole should focus more on enhancing quality of life and enhancing end-of-life care. I think that's a, a huge need that we need to discuss more with our patients because we spend so much resources on you know, the last couple of years of life that I think that's something we should readdress and focus on. But you know that ruffles some feathers. It's a longer conversation, but one I'm happy to have. Thank you very much. I mean, that it's such a valuable lens and perspective that you have, you know, with your training as an as an ethicist and and 
And in many ways, it's, it's these issues, to your point, are a microcosm of the greater systemic issues, right? And the way in which those issues are addressed, thankfully, in this case, there was advocacy and there was, there was a seat at the table, which, as you mentioned, is not always the case. Mm-hmm. And I think the way in which each of those these instances that are addressed can provide a blueprint for some of our bigger issues. And I was struck by your words just a little bit ago about wanting to be the person, you know, who says the least in a conversation. And I I know I'm not, uh, I do, I recognize the irony of that as a podcast host that, (laughs) that, and I'm sure you, you, you feel the same, but you know, and uh, to your, to your question earlier about learning to be a podcast host, if today's, you know, interactions are any clue, it's not that hard, you know, if based on your, your, the host that you're interact with today. So, you're you're already well above you know me and I've been doing it for, for a little while but but the I just want to end our time together by just listening to anything that you would want to touch on that we haven't talked about that is an open-ended question as we teach our medical students uh, but one that's genuine any further kind of reflections about recent events about your career or about any other messages you wanted to make sure that we hear because I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you today, Stephen. It's, I've learned a ton. I, I could talk to you for hours. I want to be respectful of your time. But uh, any further kind of thoughts or reflections on your end? Yeah, um, I think in terms of everything that's going on now, it's important to realize that progress is still being made. You know, the civil rights movement was in the 60s. We had 400 years of slavery. So I will say, you know, we are continually making steady progress. Things are getting better. Things may look worse. Things are being filmed. So we actually see what has been going on this whole time. But kind of like coronavirus testing, you know, we didn't know the impact of the disease until we could test more. We could see the prevalence. So, you know, cameras and technology are allowing us to see the prevalence of racism in our society. And, you know, it's rough. The times we're going through, it's not comfortable. But I think, you know, you need to be uncomfortable to make growth. What's going on is sparking conversations with people that don't don't look like each other. And that's incredibly important to start having those conversations. This is not the time to just promulgate your ideas or, you know, some people have very strong minds and, and strong willed and they're going to put a lot of stuff out in social media. I would caution them to think, you know, before you post what effect will this post have? By all means, we have the freedom of speech, but we're, we're not free from consequences for our actions. If you feel that you need to get something off your chest, by all means, do it. But you may get a lot more attention than, than you want it. I think what's more important is to start having those conversations with people that don't look like you and start getting that input to see what are the situations that you deal with on a daily basis. That and the one thing that I personally have been trying to do is to see the humanity in everyone. And I think that's a a big part of the issue is when you see somebody as less human than yourself, it allows you to treat them some way different. So whether it's seeing Black people as less than human or immigrants or developmentally delayed, once you start to see everyone as human, I think that will change your interaction. Me personally, I've been trying, and I, I would say this to your listeners, when you stop at the stoplight and there's somebody out there panhandling, Try to see that person as more human. Understand that maybe they were kicked out of their house at a young age. Maybe they grew up without their parents. Maybe they they were recently evicted. They've got kids to feed. And try to attach more humanity with the different people that you interact with. You'll start seeing them differently, and that'll change your overall outlook on life and how you interact and treat other people. Thank you. You know, one one of my mentors uh, told me once before you go into every room, and I'm an ER doc, but before you go into every room for a new patient, it's everyone is somebody's somebody, yeah. right? And everybody has a story. And uh, thank you for sharing your story. 
for sharing the stories of your colleagues and for such a personal commitment to to making change. You know, we are excited for everywhere that the Black Doctors podcast and your personal career are going to go. And we're honored that you've taken the time to be with us today, Stephen. Thank you. Well, with that, uh, we'll, we'll call a close to this. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time, as I said. Uh, thank you. Really, I um, I learned so much from you just in our short time together. Would love to keep a steady contact between our podcasts. Would love to contribute and help out in any way with any initiatives that you're doing, you know, personally in your practice or or, in, uh, or, or through the podcast. You know, we... Uh, we're really fortunate to have had the, the time with you this morning and, and, and really want to thank you for that, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.